What does it mean to be a guest and a host? What are the critical moments for guests and hosts? And are, are we accomplishing what we need to at each of those? The answer is no, right? Like we were very focused on the online experience that people had, coming to Airbnb and searching and you know, booking. But then we kind of let it go after that. The whole offline experience was offline and untouchable for us. But when you use Airbnb, like that's all you remember. You don't remember the whole process of searching and booking. You remember, you know, going to Paris and like staying with a Parisian and going to the cafes and all these sorts of things. And so that was a really important moment for us to, to recognize that we weren't an online business, we were an offline business. And our whole focus on like the online experience was not what mattered. What mattered was the offline experience and we needed to find a way to kind of involve ourselves there. Hey, 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 welcome new listeners. Welcome back people who already listened to an episode or two. This is the family podcast. Yeah, you guessed it. It's a podcast by the family. What is the family? We are warriors on demand for startups in Europe. We have more than 200 active startups that raised more than $600 million dollars. The combined valuation of the portfolio is around $3.5 billion today. Startups such as Algolia, Payfit, Agricool, Hitch, Fretlink, Side, name it. We are a family for entrepreneurs because entrepreneurs in Europe need a family to share knowledge, ambition, love, good food and wine. And we publish a lot of content on our YouTube channel, Startup Food, Medium articles, posts, Anything you might need to build ambitious startups in Europe. And when we think about ambitious and successful startups, we automatically hear the word Airbnb. Riley Newman was their head of data science and he did a talk at the family about what really happened at Airbnb, what was behind the scenes and how it became a unicorn. So he gave us a general overview with a data-driven angle And to be honest, this talk is a gem. It's super complete. You have a lot of tips, a lot of anecdotes about what happened, about how they evolved, what challenges they faced, how they learned in the process. And all of these things are small components that helped in the long, long run to build this giant, giant company we all know today. So fasten your seatbelt and get ready for the ride. The way that I thought about this talk, uh, I call it, you know, building a unicorn. It's about Airbnb, but the point is really about like, you know, kind of what happened behind the scenes at Airbnb that made it a successful company. And I think with that framework, it's, it's really for the entrepreneurs in the audience who are engaged in their own sort of pursuits of building a company and the types of problems and challenges that you'll face, which I think were very similar to the challenges that we face at Airbnb. And hopefully this inspires you to think of new ways to kind of, you know, break past them. So. What's ahead? So the way that I put this together is I want to show you guys what we did with data at Airbnb, how that influenced our strategy, and how that affected the way that we organize ourselves. Because I think the Airbnb story, as people have heard it, is very sort of first order. It's very surface level. You see the products that we launch. You kind of you know, see the marketing campaigns that we put out. You hear about our growth, and you go and stay in an Airbnb, you meet a host, which is all great. But there was a lot that was happening behind the scenes that made all of that stuff possible. And that's a story that I think doesn't typically get told. Um, so let's dive into that. First, I want to kind of you know, give you guys some context. 
there, there are two sort of kernels of wisdom that were hugely important to Airbnb. And this is kind of old news. I'm sure many of you guys are familiar with this. But you're going to see this play out throughout the rest of the talk. The first one comes from Paul Graham when uh, Brian, Nate, and Joe did Y Combinator. And he talked about, you know, it's better to have 100 people love you than a million people like you. And that it's better to kind of like engage with the people who use your product than, you know, kind of build something at scale that doesn't necessarily connect with people. It's, it's all about connections with people. And similarly, within the culture of the company, or inside the company, the culture is really, really important. And they had this moment when they went to Las Vegas, and they met with Tony Shea, the founder of Zappos, uh, who wrote this book about you know, happiness and culture. And they were really taken with this idea that like, they didn't have to build sort of a company with sort of the stale feeling of like, corporations you know, that like, our, our parents had joined. They could do something different. It could be more of a human place to work. And working with each other and enjoying working with each other is really fundamental to building a great company. So those two ideas, connecting, it was, it was really about people. It was about connecting with the people who are going to use what you're making and about the people that you work with. And those two things were super important for us at Airbnb. So diving, diving into the story a little bit, Ramen Profitable was a concept that uh, the founders uh, kind of you know, drew on a mirror in the early days. Uh, they wanted to get to a point where they could afford ramen, which is like the cheapest food you can possibly find in San Francisco. Um, but they wanted to get to a point where like, you know, Airbnb had some traction, and they were trying to figure out how to do that. And you know, so Paul Graham, of course, told them to go and talk to people, and they were doing that. And they were building a product kind of in response to what people uh, you know, said that they needed. Um, but they brought me on in 2010, like Fanny mentioned, at a time when you know, companies weren't hiring data. In fact, the term data science didn't even exist yet. Um, it wasn't coined until you know, a couple years later. And so you know, we met through mutual friends. And they said, you know, like, we have a little bit of data. We have you know, some people who are using this thing that we're building. And we want to understand it. We want to better understand how to serve these people and how to kind of make this platform better. So how do we do that? And so you know, I joined and kind of started thinking about things and, and, and started to create what we called like sort of the, the data engine, right? We began by, you know, of course, thinking, you know, I, I don't know how technical you guys want me to get here, but we started thinking about like the concept of logging. Like, how do you capture what people are thinking and feeling and doing in a way that can be useful for, you know, your understanding of those things? We thought about kind of the design of our, our warehouse, the way that information is stored. We thought about our infrastructure, the way that you can, like, you know, work with your data. And it was all very simplistic back then, and it evolved massively over the years afterwards. But we kind of created sort of the core basic infrastructure to understand the community. And we didn't have enough data to really you know, get into higher level statistical stuff. But we could start to pick out these sort of aggregate trends. And that was really important for us, right? Like we were able to start to think about the way we prioritize our time, our resources, which in a startup, when you're very resource constrained, is critical. Every decision you make is super important, and it determines kind of the life or death of the company. And so we wanted to be very strategic about our data. So we started to look at trends in aggregate, and we saw people moving from city to city, of course, in that some cities actually influenced regions. If we won Paris, we would, we would get Marseille. If we got Marseille, we would get Nice. If we got Nice, you, know, you get these smaller and smaller areas. There was a lot of kind of virality associated with the product. Somebody would, would, like New York was like the gateway drug for Airbnb. Everybody came to New York first, and then they would go home and they would become a host, which was really interesting. And then once they were hosts, someone else would come and stay with them and they would go home and be a host. 
So the trick was like, how do we move from one city to another in a way that's strategic? What are the most important nodes that exist within our platform that we should be especially focused on? And so we started these marketing campaigns, which, and again, there were like only you know, a couple of us at the time. It was you know, like 10 people working in this you know, small apartment, their apartment, Brian and Joe's apartment. Uh, I worked in their bedroom, which is a little weird. Um, <laughs> but we, we were trying to drive growth in like Rome. And it's like, you know, for like two people in Brian's bedroom, how do we grow Airbnb in Rome? And so we kind of looked at these aggregate trends in our data and we would say like, there's all these people who are searching for Rome and there's like nobody who's hosting. And so at the time, Facebook ads were just getting started. Uh, and, and we were able to target people in Rome with those ads. And we'd say, you know, become a host. And we'd try all these different versions of the ad until people, until we saw that it started to work. And so we would get more and more people to host. And then eventually we got so many people who signed up to be hosts that, you know, it outweighed demand. And so then we would go to Google and look for people who are searching for a trip to take in Rome. And we'd say, hey, if you're going to Rome, why don't you use Airbnb? And that's how we drove supply and demand and started to balance out these markets. But what was also happening behind the scene, I love this picture, by the way. This is one night after work. We all went to this trampoline warehouse. I'm not in it, because I broke my ankle two minutes before on one of these damn blue things. Um, but anyways, uh, it was super fun. And like we had this group of people that um, we had very carefully picked to work with each other. Everybody who joined Airbnb was interviewed by everybody else at Airbnb. It had to be like a unanimous decision that this is somebody we all want to work with which of course made hiring like impossible. And we had to interview people incessantly. But the group of people that we wound up with were all people that like, you know, you could sit next to for 12 hours a day, seven days a week, and like, you didn't hate it. It was actually a lot of fun. Um, and because we all got along so well, there was a lot of trust that was created between people. And everyone was able to kind of communicate, work with each other, and had perfect context into like what everyone else was doing. So when Joe, whose cell phone was customer support, people would call Joe and say, I've got this problem. Joe would then say, OK, I'm sorry, we'll fix it. You know, and he turned to Nick, the engineer, and you know, he'd say, look, people are having trouble with this thing, and, and Nick would fix it. And then you know, he would turn to Nate and say, like, OK, we can turn back on you know, growth in Rome because we fixed this thing. And so everybody had perfect context into what was happening, and we were able to move very, very quickly, um, which was, of course, super important, and something that I'll talk about later as we started to get a lot bigger. That becomes very tricky. So things, so things in Airbnb were going well. This is like, you know, late 2010, early 2011. We feel like things are starting to work. We feel good about where things are going. And it was not long thereafter that a very important moment happened in Airbnb history. I'm sure you guys recognize these guys, the Samware brothers. They're famous for, you know, cloning successful startups in Silicon Valley and building them out very quickly in Europe, which is a terrifying thing, you know, if it, if it happens to you in San Francisco, because you're faced with this decision where you either lose Europe to the Samwares or you go off and you have to buy them, right? At a time when you don't have the resources to do that sort of thing. Or you have to fight and you know, just kind of duke it out with these guys. But they're very experienced, they're very successful at what they do. And so in 2011, when we found out that they had cloned Airbnb and started to build out Wimdu, um, that was a real sort of gut check for us. And I think it really shocked Airbnb into adulthood. I think previously, I would characterize the company as like a teenager. And this is like a moment where it's like, we have to be an adult now. We have to like really grow up in the way that we do everything, and we have to do it faster. So what did we do? First, again, we began with our data. And I think at this point, we had, you know, we we're much bigger. The company was bigger. We had more data. We we're able to go much deeper with the data that we had and start to understand the users behind Airbnb 
and you know, use actual statistics to, to understand like, what do people like, what do people not like, you know, what, do they, what do they prefer. And what's interesting about this relative to what we were doing before is that previously we could just see kind of like the markets where Airbnb needed to be. But we couldn't really see the people because we didn't have enough data to really understand what people were doing. And the Samwers were able to see Airbnb's markets and its growth and its traction, and they were able to build sort of a business that was very similar to us. But they didn't have access to our data, and they couldn't see the people behind the product. So as we studied them, we, we found some things that were really interesting. 68% of people would visit, uh, of people who were trying to book as a guest, would visit a host profile before booking. They wanted to see who's this person that they're staying with. First-time guests were 20% more likely to visit a host profile than people who had done it before. If someone had a bad experience, their likelihood of coming back dropped 26%. But if we had a customer support team that worked with those people and, and kind of addressed the experience, that reduced to 6%. And 75% of trips were reviewed, and hosts without reviews were four times less likely to get booked than, for, than hosts who had reviews. So these are you know, some examples of statistics that we're able to kind of uncover from our data that helped us think about the approach that we would take to the SAMRs, which was to focus on trust, was to focus on people, build better connections with the community. Again, getting back to that point I mentioned earlier from Paul Graham, and, and focus on the people on the platform rather than growth. So that's what we did. Then we did a bunch of things to kind of help our host community, including building a big customer support team, but we also uh, built a photography operation where we'd go from, from you know, property to property, or we'd send uh, photographers to properties take pictures of the property for the host for free and upload them for the host to give people a better sense for like, what is this thing that they're booking? We made it mandatory that everybody upload a picture of themselves and write a description about themselves so their profiles were a little bit more trustworthy. We did a bunch of experiments and tests on you know, how to get people to leave reviews with more information, higher quality information. So these are just like a couple examples of you know, things that we started to work on. But in aggregate, they had this effect of creating more trust within the community of Airbnb, and therefore more retention and people kind of staying on the platform, which is ultimately what helped us win. But simultaneously, we, we went out into the world and we started to build offices. We started to build a presence in, uh, I love this picture by the way. Um, we started to build a presence in you know, markets around the world. Before Airbnb, or before the sort of Samwares came along, you know, we had 15 people at that point working in a little warehouse in San Francisco. But after the Samwares came, we realized that we needed a presence all over the world to be closer to the people who are using Airbnb. So we acquired a company named Ecolio in Hamburg, and then eventually we you know, built a team in Berlin, and then we started to build teams you know, here in Paris and around Europe and in Asia and in Latin America, and established this kind of global footprint for what we were doing so we could be that much closer to the people that were using Airbnb and understand them that much better. For me and for you know, the other people in San Francisco, that meant we were spending a lot of time flying around and trying to share insights about like, how we understood the business, how we understood the community, how we understood our data, and kind of get everyone on the same page, which is challenging because the team was so small. And so later on, we realized we had to kind of you know, build more tools and infrastructure to kind of you know, help share insights and things. But we started to think about the problem of not just connecting with the community of people using Airbnb, but also the employees who are working for Airbnb and how to like, get everyone on the same page, which I'll talk more about in a moment. But ultimately, uh, it was an intense couple years and, and they were successful. I think by focusing on the community, by focusing on trust, 
And by understanding our data, it made a huge difference in you know, kind of the way Airbnb grew relative to Wimdo. And ultimately, we beat them. And not long thereafter, we, we started to shift our focus from internationalization to back to the product, to the thing that you know, we're all there to build that we're so excited about. And we had you know, been a little bit distracted until then by, uh, by you know, growth and, and the Samwares and these sorts of things. And so we wanted to get back to kind of the core of our like, infrastructure and technology that would help Airbnb work better for the people behind it. On the data side, we started to, to think a lot more about personalization and matching. And this comes from kind of a funny moment. Uh, it was late one night. One of the guys on our team was like, you know, there's this interesting thing. He was like, do you know what happens when someone searches for San Francisco? And I was like, well, they get a bunch of properties in San Francisco. And he's like, yeah, but like, where are those properties? He's like, what happens is you, you put San Francisco into our you know, search bar, and we take that string and we send it to Google, and Google sends back a latitude and longitude coordinate for where it thinks that place is, and then we return lots of listings around that place. How many of you guys have been to San Francisco? Okay, a bunch of you. How many of you know where that is, the pink thing? No one? One? Alex, you know it, my wife. Uh, no, that's the Tenderloin. That's, that's the worst part of San Francisco. It's awful. Like, if you go to San Francisco, don't go to the Tenderloin. It's terrible. And that's where we were sending everybody. <laughs> because we sort of naively just, you know, took this latitude-longitude coordinate from Google and returned stuff around it. But this is an example of the technology doing what you told it to do, but it doesn't understand how to do it right. And so we had to start to, like, teach the machines behind Airbnb what it means to be right. So we started to think about personalization and matching, and we, we, we took people's review scores, we kind of mapped them out around San Francisco, and we were able to show that like, people leave higher reviews, better reviews, when they stay in neighborhoods that are nice, right? Makes sense. It's not like groundbreaking stuff here. But the point was the machines didn't know this, and we didn't know that the machines didn't know that. And so we started to build these algorithms that would help train the machines about what constitutes good for anywhere in the world that anybody ever searches, because every city has its own footprint. This is the quality of review, reviews relative to distance from the center point of the city. And you can see that San Francisco, New York, LA, they're all different. And so you can't create some sort of like, you know, handmade model to tell machines how every place you know, should be represented in Airbnb's results. We had to use the data that we had about people's experience to train it to work more effectively. And so this was an example, one example of many things that we were doing like this. But it was very successful in improving our search results and people's experiences behind Airbnb, which was great. But it was around this time that Brian, the CEO, read the book, uh, a book of Walt Disney, um, kind of talking about his life and his experiences building Disney, and was very fascinated by the story of Snow White. And when he made Snow White, you know, his first feature-length animation, he sat down first and storyboarded the process. He went through kind of each of the most important moments or milestones of what he wanted Snow White to be and drew them out so he made sure they didn't miss them. And then they would kind of stitch those moments together uh, in kind of the rest of the work that they were doing with the film, but it ensured that like nothing was missed. And so, so Brian was like, why haven't we done this for Airbnb? What does it mean to be a guest and a host? What are the critical moments for guests and hosts? And are, are we accomplishing what we need to at each of those? The answer is no, right? Like, we were very focused 
on the online experience that people had, coming to Airbnb and searching and you know, booking. But then we kind of let it go after that. The whole offline experience was offline and untouchable for us. But when you use Airbnb, like, that's all you remember. You don't remember the whole process of searching and booking. You remember you know, going to Paris and like, staying with a Parisian and going to the cafes and all these sorts of things. And so that was a really important moment for us to, to recognize that we weren't an online business, we were an offline business. And our whole focus on like, the online experience was not what mattered. What mattered was the offline experience, and we needed to find a way to kind of involve ourselves there. And so we started to design teams around these key moments and start thinking about the offline experience, which you guys may have seen a few months ago was launched in the whole experiences product of Airbnb. That's the culmination of, of this sort of moment for Brian. It's something we worked on for several years, and it's going to be a huge part of Airbnb in the future. But what we realized in going through this process is that what we had done in the previous years at Airbnb in thinking about uh, you know, how to use our data to drive markets and then understand people and then build products in response to the needs of those people was a concept that we could then extend out to all the other milestones of the business. And so we wanted to build teams that were focused on each milestone, and that required building an organization. Um, so we had, we had you know, more and more people joining and from uh, the perspective of my team, you know, grew from you know, just a couple of us to you know, over 100 people pretty quickly. And there are a lot of really important questions that we grappled with along the way. And this is sort of a high class problem. Like once you have you know, like hundreds and hundreds of people in the company, you know, it's not where most startups wind up. But if you do, it's actually a real problem. Because like when you were early, you know, working in Roush, all sitting around the table, all sort of on the same page and talking to each other, it's super easy. But when you have hundreds of people, it's like how do you coordinate them? And from the perspective of a data science organization, it brings up lots of interesting questions about how to organize yourselves. Should it be one centralized group where everybody sits and works together? Or should it be like distributed out where everybody sits with you know, people who do different things? And should they be focused as you know, one group that creates knowledge, right? like one department, or should they be focused on topics? Ultimately, we wound up with sort of these cross-functional units. It was like a matrix organization where we had sort of uh, engineers and designers and data scientists all sitting together and all working together, which we found to work much better than having people sitting within their own large teams. Even if they were sitting like five feet away from, you know, like if I'm a data scientist and I'm sitting next to an engineer, I thought this was fascinating. I had like a whole table of my data scientists. We all sat together, and behind us was a whole table of engineers. And nobody trusted anybody. The engineers didn't trust the data scientists. The data scientists didn't trust the engineers. And there was all this bickering and you know, bullshit. And, and, and finally, one day, I was like, listen, we have to like, break up our little table here. I was like, we can't sit together anymore. And the data scientists were really upset about this. And everybody was very sad. And it was a dark moment in our history and all this. But we said, listen, you guys are both working on the, the concept of matching engineers and data scientists, regardless of your discipline and your schooling and all these sorts of things. You're working on the same problem. Why don't you sit together and think about it? And like overnight, all of the trust issues just disappeared. Like everything just worked. And you know, people would stay late and they were talking about stuff and there were all these serendipitous ideas that were amazing. And everything started to work. So it was like this kind of funny moment for me where it was like, God, just like sitting someone next to someone else, it makes such a difference. We also implemented something that they use at Facebook, which I thought was really great. Each of these teams started to think about the way that they the way that they worked, the way that they sort of delivered on their goals. And Facebook had this model called UIE, 
understand, identify, execute, where basically they would begin any sort of project with this understand phase where they'd go off and do a bunch of research and, and dig through the data and try to understand the, the sort of context of the problem. And then once they'd fully understood it, they would identify the lever that was most useful, they thought, in, in kind of affecting whatever change they needed to. And then they would run a bunch of experiments and, and figure out whether this hypothesis that they had was as effective as they hoped it would be. And then they would circle back to the beginning and carry on. So we adopted this model for these cross-functional teams, and it was really good. But then over time, we started to get really big. Thousands of people. Crazy. Go into these like, you know, team meetings for my team, and it would look like this. And I was like, who are you people? Jesus. Um, but it was great. I mean, they're wonderful people. They were super talented. But there's this huge communication cost now. And like, if you can make everyone sort of 1% more productive, it has this massive aggregate effect on the whole company. And the cost of communication across 1,000 people is really significant. So it drags down productivity. So we started to think about like, how do you balance those two things? Like, how can you increase you know, how effective everyone else is at work? How do you create leverage? And so this is where we started to pivot the concept of our data from understanding just the community to actually understanding how people work and like where are their pain points and how can we help them be better at what they do. And we found a couple things that were sort of funny. One was that like, you know, Airbnb had tons of seasonality, right? Like people prefer to travel to different locations at different times of year, obviously. But we found that there was as much seasonality to our analysis as there was to the business. Like people were answering the same questions at the same months of every year. And it was always too hard to go back and figure out what you had done before. And so you're like, screw it, I'll just do it again, which is hugely inefficient. Our infrastructure was breaking all the time because so many people were using it. We had so much data, and it was taking everyone forever to kind of like get an answer to a simple question. And this is one of my favorite queries. This, is, this goes on for a couple hundred more lines. This is how to calculate revenue. It was crazy. It was like the hardest thing in the world. And so we're like, surely there's a better way, right? So we started to build tools. We started to build infrastructure, and we open sourced all of it which was great because it gave our engineers and data scientists a little credibility in the technical community for what they built, and it returned some solutions to problems that you know, we had uh, solved at Airbnb to other startups. So if you guys are founders you know, working in different startups, I highly recommend you check out the Knowledge Repo, AirPal, and Airflow. Those are three tools that are amazing, and they completely changed our lives at Airbnb. But around the same time, we started to have this question of like, you know, at a higher level, what are we doing? Like, what, what are all these thousands of people at Airbnb meant to be doing? And, you know, we had a sense for how the business worked after the whole Snow White exercise. But we needed a stronger North Star that everyone could map their work to. It was very hard. People understood when they were successful, like in their own little sort of arena, working on like a payment mechanism or, you know, customer support channels or something. But it was like, where is this all getting, getting to? And uh, I remember sitting with our CFO, and we're kind of we're asking the same question. We're like, you know, like how do we make sense of all this work and actually prioritize our time across all these different tracks? Like, if I hire another data scientist, where's the most important place in the company for them to go? That was a really hard question for us to answer. And so there's this talk by Simon Sinek, which I think is great. I'm sure many of you have seen it, but it's like you know, being clear about your mission. Like, why do you exist? Right? And then once you understand why, it's like, you know, how do you deliver on this mission that you've established? And then what do you do in, in service of that? 
And so we went through this exercise at Airbnb and came up with this, you know, very sort of concise definition of why Airbnb exists. You know, we want people to be able to belong anywhere, which is a great term. And so then we said, well, how do we measure that? And we said, well, you know, like a pretty easy proxy is like, you know, nights where people are staying on, where guests are staying with hosts, right? Like that's sort of a concept of, of belonging, or at least it shows when people are like having these experiences. And so we said, okay, well, what do we predict is going to happen this year in terms of you know, how much of this is going to happen, and then where do we actually want to get to above and beyond that? And then how do we map everyone's work into sort of that North Star? And so it started to create more of a framework for everyone to interpret their work through and helped us make decisions about how to prioritize sort of one track of work over another, which it's funny, like in retrospect, I'm like, why didn't we do that in like 2010? We totally could have done that, and it would have been great. And then around the same time, we said, okay, so now we've got like this, you know, this, this sense for where we're headed and why we're going and what's meaningful, but how do we sort of organize ourselves you know, relative to that North Star? And, uh, and, and we realized, it was kind of a funny analogy, that like, um, it was similar to like, you know, 10-year-olds who, who play soccer or football, right? It, it, they like kick the ball and everybody goes running after the ball. And the ball goes over here and everybody goes running after the ball and it was like, it's like crazy, right? But when you look at great teams, like your European teams, people, like, people hold their position. They know where they work. They know where they belong. They know their position. They stay there. They work as an integrated unit. And that was something that we needed to be a lot more mindful about at Airbnb. And we designed those positions around the frames in Snow White, you know, those key milestones for guests and hosts. And then we could map all those positions up to this sort of aggregate outcome and understand you know, together what we were working toward. So that takes us to sort of this time last year. And um, it's amazing, like, startup time. It's like, you know, I'd been there for six and a half years. And, you know, it felt both like, you know, 10 minutes and 20 years. Like, it, it was kind of conflicting. Like, which is it? But it was crazy. And I finally kind of took a step back and I said, you know, all of this has been amazing. This has been an incredible experience. You know, but, but what's sort of the next thing for me? And I was sort of plagued with this question of, like, how do you... How do you kind of continue to create impact in the world, even beyond Airbnb? And I was very proud of where we'd come from. I think that, you know, like we had connected millions of people around the world in ways that, you know, help people understand each other's cultures. We'd reduced, you know, the footprint of globalization in a way that I think makes it more environmentally sustainable. We'd given people opportunities to create new streams of income that many people use to kind of support artistic passions and pursuits and these sorts of things. So there's a lot of good that I think came out of Airbnb. But I was trying to figure out sort of what's next, right? And eventually, my wife and I decided to leave Airbnb in San Francisco. We said, we're somewhere that we can go and kind of you know, think about life. And she wanted to get into wine. And this is a great place to get into wine. She's studying wine here. And, and I wanted to take some time and kind of figure out, like, you know, what is this next thing for me? How do you create this kind of impact going forward? And then, of course, in the fall, Trump was elected, which was like, like a real wake-up call. It's like, Jesus, what happened? You know, it, it was amazing for me. It was, it was like a real shock. And we can, we can debate for hours about like, what led to that. But I don't think that's what's important. I think that what's important is where do we go from here? Tech and globalization may or may not be responsible for Trump's rise. But I think what it is responsible for is creating a solution to the future, to making globalization sustainable. 
I think what we've seen is that globalization is absolutely imperfect. There are a lot of problems that, it is, that have come with it. But I also think it's inevitable. And like trying to fight globalization or be against it is like fighting with the wind, right? Like you can build a wall against it, but all that does is box you in. And so the question is, how do you sort of move the wind in a direction that makes more sense, that's better for us? And I think, you know, for me, the wind is really the exchange of like culture and ideas and a lot of the concepts that are like inherent to globalization. And I think that that is why I'm here in Paris, why I'm talking to you guys tonight. I want to share the ideas, my experiences. Hopefully you're able to do something with them. Because I think that entrepreneurs are really going to be the agents of change going forward. A lot of the problems that we have around the world, climate change, et cetera, are problems that are international. They're cross-border in nation. They're naturally cross-border. And so it's entrepreneurs who are thinking in a global context that I think can actually solve some of these problems that are inherently global in nature. And so I want to kind of figure out how we can do that. And I don't just think that entrepreneurialism is restricted to the business world. You know, like the, the whole mentality of Silicon Valley has been brought to bear on the Golden State Warriors. They didn't win last year, but they're really good and they're probably going to win this year. And, you know, the American Civil Liberties Union just joined Y Combinator. They're going to be in a batch this winter. So there's a lot of these concepts that are really powerful for all kinds of things that we can do. And so I want to leave you guys with like a couple thoughts about, you know, sort of distilling some of the most important insights to me that came out of the Airbnb experience. And the first is this idea of creating the outcomes that you want through an architecture of your organization, however it works. Like this visualization of you know, what guests and hosts actually experience as they use Airbnb is like the skeleton of Airbnb, right? And it wasn't until we really understood this that we were able to kind of like affect change uh, more successfully. And so I recommend that whatever you guys do, you know, go through the process of storyboarding it. Understand really how it works. Like what are the most important things most important experiences associated with whatever you're doing, and how do you measure those things? What data do you have at each of these points that tells you whether they're going well or not? Those are the metrics that you set. Are you doing things that are actually making a difference, or are you just moving one thing up which moves the next thing down? You have to have good sort of quality metrics for understanding this stuff. Are you using the concepts of experimentation to understand causally what happened relative to what you did? And do you understand the people behind the numbers? Do you understand who they are and why they're doing these things and what motivates them? Or are you treating them like one aggregate group where everyone is the same? Which obviously doesn't make any sense. And so that leads me to like, what is data science? It's a term that doesn't mean anything, right? What is the science of data? What, what, what science doesn't use data? To me, data science is about feedback loops. In the early days, as I mentioned, Paul Graham was very influential to Airbnb, and as a result of his advice, Brian and Joe would fly to New York every weekend, and they would meet with guests and hosts and talk to them. They would say, you know, why are you using Airbnb? What's working? What's not working? And that set the direction for what they did with the product. But a couple years later, and I think that's actually a big reason why Airbnb was so successful, is we had this culture of listening, right? But fast forward a couple years, and there's millions of people using Airbnb, and how do you talk to all of them? And then there's thousands of employees. How do they talk to all of them? There's like this many-to-many -many problem that's impossible without data. And like, what is data, right? Like, data is, it's a reflection of like a decision. It's a reflection of an emotion. It's a reflection of like a, a trait or characteristic of someone. And so in aggregate, you can understand kind of the people behind the numbers. 
really, to me, data science is, is hearing the voice of your community. It's, it's being able to connect with them at scale. And the more you pay attention, I think the better you'll be at providing whatever service it is that you're working on. But it's not easy, right? It's, it's something that you have to work at. It's something that you have to build a large organization around, infrastructure, tools. It's very complicated. But this, this is the last point, is culture. Culture to me is like the most important part of what made Airbnb successful. I think the way that we you know, leveraged our data was, was one important piece of it, but the other piece was the way that we work together. For me, culture is kind of the oil for the machine. And I think it's largely something that's felt rather than spoken. You can create sort of, you know, like a set of values that you guys, you know, sort of uh, hope to adhere to, which is good, but really it shows up in your actions. One thing that I found that was kind of funny is that like the personality of the leader of a team, for better or worse, is uh, a mirror image of the culture of its team, or sort of the other way around. So like, you know, as teams got bigger at Airbnb, you'd see like, they all had their own culture, and it was largely a reflection of their leader. So if you lead a large team, the way you show up every day will be the way that people treat each other. There are these incredible ripple effects that happen within the team, and it's something you have to be very mindful of. I realized that hiring is just as, or firing is just as important as hiring. If you have people who are dragging down the culture, who are really negative to each other, that's worse than hiring someone who's just like mediocre. You have to, the culture of a team is something that you have to like really work at and maintain and hold in high regard. And the diversity of your team is probably the most important thing. If you have a bunch of people who all look and sound and think like each other, you're not gonna be innovative. You have to bring different people from different backgrounds together. And so what I saw at Airbnb was that like whenever we had technology problems, they were always rooted in people problems. It was always because somebody chose not to talk to somebody else. It wasn't because somebody was stupid. And so, really, the culture of the team was what helped us build a lasting and great organization. So good luck to all of you with whatever you do. I hope it's great. I hope it's impactful. Thank you. Thank you for listening. Hope you loved it. Hope Riley give you a lot of things to think about. And don't worry, it's not over at all. We have a lot of content to share with you, a lot of great things coming. So feel free to subscribe to the podcast, to watch our videos on our YouTube channel Startup Food, to come to one of our events. We constantly try to apply the paid forward mindset at the family, so feel free to ping us as well. If there is something you might need and we'll try to help you. And check our website, The Family, if you want to learn more about what we do, our team, or apply to The Family. There's a button on the top right corner of the website. It's impossible not to see this button. So click on it and join us. And let's build amazing and huge startups in Europe together. See you next week.